Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, which is located on page 1 of your pew Bibles. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together He called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, 
I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. In the New Testament reading, is from the first chapter of the Gospel of John, beginning in verse 1, which is located on page 886 of your pew Bibles. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Lord in prayer. What is your favorite story? Is it from a book? From a movie? Maybe even a country song, if that's your thing? Is it a story that you've heard? What is your favorite story? Why do you like that story? Is it captivating or thrilling, mysterious? What does that story celebrate? What does it advocate? What does it proclaim to be true? You see, all stories have basic elements to it. There are characters, there's settings, a plot, there's conflict, there's a theme. And a story arc. And the story arc is very important when you think of the story. Almost every movie follows this story arc. There's the prologue, the introduction, the characters in the story. And then there's a problem. And then the characters of the story try to figure out how to solve this problem. And at the peak of the story arc is the resolution to the problem. And then there's the conclusion. This is every Disney movie you've ever seen. And it shouldn't surprise us that this basic story arc is what we see throughout Scripture. There's a prologue, Genesis 1 and 2. There, a problem arises, Genesis 3. The resolution to the, promise, to the problem is promised. In Genesis 3.15, and from Genesis 3 until the Gospels, the characters in the story are searching for the resolution to the problem. And then we find Jesus in the Gospels. And he solves the problems. And then we see in the book of Acts and the epistles and the book of Revelation speak of how Jesus has resolved the problem, yet how the problem still persists persist in our everyday lives. But then the story does not conclude the closing of the book. The story tells us to look for Jesus to return. In the same way we saw last week that he ascended into heaven, he will return for the final chapter of the story when he brings the heavens to earth in his final act of redemptive glory. This is the overarching theme of Scripture. This is what we see on every page. We read of God's great redemption of His creation through Jesus. 
He is the pinnacle of the story. This morning we are beginning we're beginning as the story begins in Genesis 1, the great introduction into the narrative of scripture. And this narrative changes our narrative. This narrative changes the narrative of every living creature on this planet. Because this narrative has a king. And we meet this king in Genesis 1. And it's not just a narrative. But it's the narrative. It's the true story that makes sense of our world. Without it, our world does not make sense. We need this narrative to understand who we are. And this morning, I want us to focus on two things. We're going to look at Israel's story, and we're going to look at our story. Let us first look at Israel's story. So Alexandria Tulikin, a graduate of Palo Alto High School in Palo Alto, California, was a Chinese adoptee of two American parents. She had been abandoned and go on China in the spring of 1996. And at eight months old, she had been adopted and brought back to the United States. She never considered what it meant to be adopted until in her second grade class, she had to do a project on her family heritage. And it was the first time she spoke of her unique difference than those in her classroom. And like every middle schooler, she doesn't want to be different. She wants to be the same. So throughout elementary school and middle school, she tried to brush off any mention that she was adopted. And then she came to realize that she couldn't bury her past. She began to realize that people would take notice of her and her parents as they walked into a restaurant for dinner. And she also realized that out of her other Chinese American, Asian American classmates, she was the only one that didn't speak Mandarin. She felt like an outsider to both Americans and Asian Americans. And this led her to desire to learn her history. She took a trip to China to learn of her past. She visited the orphanage, meeting the woman who'd take care of her after she had been abandoned. And she even went to the place where they had found her. You see, for Alexandra, her past was important because it informed her of who she was, of where she came from. She began learning about her heritage as a Chinese girl who was raised in a different country. And she only knew of these stories through her adoptive parents. This is exactly what we find in Genesis 1. Israel is learning of its history. They are learning who they are and who this God who has just adopted them is. You see, the first audience of the book of Genesis was the people of God, Israel, who had just been redeemed out of Exodus. And for us to understand the importance of this book, we must see that it has a reason it was written. 
It has people it was written to, just like mail that you have sent, or a phone call, or not a mail that you sent, a text that you've sent to somebody. It is a way of communicating from one person to another. But to understand the story, you must understand the author's purpose and intent. How did the original hearers of the book of Genesis understand who they were by the story that it tells? This book was written for the people of God when they were in the wilderness. This God had just redeemed them out of Egypt. This God had just trampled on the most supreme leader in the entire earth like he was a blade of grass. This God introduces himself as Yahweh. But who is this God, really? Because we must expect Israel had been slaves for four centuries. The only way they knew of these stories is that they were passed down from from generation to generation. And undoubtedly, they had retained some of the stories dealing with the patriarchs. But it's quite possible, if not probable, that they knew very little about this God who had just redeemed them. But this is the intent of Genesis. It reveals to Israel who this God is. And this book of Genesis is covenant history. It is God introducing himself to his people through the creation story, through the history of the patriarchs, to tell them why he has done what he has just done. He is their God, and they are his people. In the creation story, in Genesis 1 and 2, God provides the ultimate introduction of why he redeemed his people so that they might be in relationship with him. Genesis is their origin story. Genesis is the story of adopted children of their past. Not only where they came from, but who their God is. Who the God of their parents are. And he's from eternity past. This story of one God creating all things would have been confusing for them. For every country had an origin story. It took many gods to create the earth, but here they find out in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God creates, as John often says, ex nihilo, out of nothing. This is Israel's God who has saved them, who has redeemed them, and who has come into a covenant relationship with them. And it's important for us to see that this covenant is the fundamental engine that drives the rest of the narrative of Scripture. What is a covenant, you might ask? Well, I'm glad you did. And this is a term that John and I frequently use behind this pulpit and everywhere we teach. We must understand that a covenant is first and foremost a relationship between persons. This is how we understand our marriages. They are a covenant between two people 
that bind them together in promises and obligations to serve one another, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. These are the vows of the covenant that we take for our spouse. Yet within the biblical covenants, there's always a greater and a lesser party. God has just established himself as the greater party in the covenant. And this is the relationship that Israel has just entered into. We see a glimpse of it in Exodus 24, 3-8. Don't turn there. You can write it down if you want to. But just listen as, as Israel enters in into a covenant with God. Moses came and told the people of the words, all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the front on the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins. And half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it. And in the hearing of the people, and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now, some of you don't want me to get ox blood and throw it on you. But this is establishing God's covenant with his people. These are the people the book of Genesis is written to. It's a family history and the prehistory of this God who loves them and has redeemed them. He is the God of all of creation. As they saw in the Exodus, all of creation follows his command. He is their king. We also see in Genesis 1, every time he speaks, it is done. And then he names the day, the night, the sky, the land, the sun, the moon, the sea, and even man. Because he is the right to assign names. Because he is their Lord. Here in Genesis 1, we see two huge biblical themes. The theme of the covenant, and wait for it, the kingdom of God. So you see, covenants suggested the abiding character of God works continually because of what he has done in the past. Covenants are foundational based. When we look at the covenants, we're always supposed to remember what God has done so that we can have hope for the future. But see, the kingdom theme in Scripture always looks forward. It's goal-oriented. God is the king of creation, has a goal for that creation. To be good. To be in relation with him. 
Jesus, or Jesus, that's really awful of me. Jessica and I were both born and raised in Bentonville, Arkansas, a place that has changed over the past few years from a small startup company in the 1980s. One of the things that's changed is that there is this state-of-the-art American art museum called Crystal Bridges. The museum itself is an art, a piece of art. The architecture is beautiful. The landscaping is breathtaking. But when you go inside, you just are overwhelmed by the beauty of the art all over the walls. And each time you go up to the artwork and you see a plaque or you see a little card, it tells you about its creator. Genesis 1 and 2 is the plaque on God's creation. It introduces us to the creator of the story. God introduces himself to his people, that he is their king, and that he has chosen to adopt them, to redeem them, and that he is bound to them for no glory for himself other than to be in a relationship with his people. Genesis 1 informs of, informs Israel's story of who God is, but it also informs Israel's story of their own identity. See, Genesis 1 also introduces us to the creation of man. You see, God created in chapters 1 and 2, and we continually hear this refrain, God said, and it was so. And it was good. In Genesis 2, we see this God looking at this earth without form and void. The first three days, he gives order to the formless. The second three days, he fills that which is void. And then we see it. God call his creation good. But then we come to Genesis 1.26. And something different happens. And God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And said to them, be fruitful and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish and of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And it was very good. God created man for a very specific purpose. You know, last week or two weeks ago, I went into my first Memphis football game, and I tried something new as I thought of this sermon. Every person that I saw walk by, I looked at that person and said, they are created in the image of God for his glory. If we do this with each person we meet, 
it will change the way we look at people. Whether tall or short, black or white, God created them for his glory. Because he wants a relationship with them. God created Israel to be his image, to be his likeness. These two words clarify, point to one another. Every human has this attribute. They are God's image. They were created to be in relationship with him. And God created us man and woman Gender distinction is built into the creational order prior to Genesis 3. We always stand in relationship to one another. And we always stand in relationship with God. And this is not all. Humans were created to have dominion over the creation. We are to care for it. We're to explore its potential. Work Within it. This too is before Genesis 3. The earth, the work of the earth was good, part of the creational order. And God gives man the job of naming the animals, showing his lordship, his authority, not to rule over them as a tyrant, but as a loving steward answerable to God. Imagine you're a 15th century sculptor. And one day you receive a message from Michelangelo asking if you will come and you will help him complete a piece that he's working on. But then he leaves. And as he leaves, he mentions, I expect you to finish this sculpture. But my name is the reputation of the finished product. Do your work in my name. God calls his people, Israel, to have dominion over his creation. And they are answerable to him for their use of creation. They are stewards of the world. We are called to develop its hidden potential in agriculture, in art, in music, in commerce, in politics, in scholarship, in family life, in church life, even in our leisure, we are called to have dominion for the glory of our King. The physical world is good. The physical world is where God created us to be. It is our home. We are not to escape from it. We are to care for it. And Genesis is not an exhaustive history of the world before the Exodus. Moses leaves out many things. But the one thing that Moses does is he draws our attention that this God who has just redeemed his people is a God that loves us, that created all things. He is sovereign, but yet he is imminent. And that he has a relationship with his people. All Israel needs to know is that this God is their God. And they are his people. 
He is their covenant king. They were created for this relationship, to rule over this creation, and to have mission, to be image bearers over the face of the earth. This leads me to my last point. Genesis informs Israel of who God is. It informs Israel of who they are. But Genesis also informs our story. Who are we in the story? As we've seen, Genesis 1 and 2 informs Israel of who God is and who they are. But it does even more than that. It informs us of who we are. You see, Moses wrote Genesis for the specific people, for the specific purpose. But yet we benefit greatly because we are now heirs of the covenant through faith in Jesus. We are not left out looking in. We are invited to bring our messy stories and to join in on their messy story, which is being redeemed in Christ But the point of the introduction of the story is that the story does not begin with us. It begins with God of creation. As we read Genesis 1, you heard those repeated words, and it was good, and it was good, and it was very good. And what this story should tell us is that over and over and over again, God saw his creation, and it was good. In the beginning of the story, in the prologue, their introduction of the world, everything was just as God had created it to be. But we have to ask ourselves, is this the world that we experience? Safe to say no. Our own stories tell us that there's something missing. Whether you grew up in a believing home or an unbelieving home, Our stories tell us that something is wrong. There's something that we all long for. We have broken families, broken marriages, melting careers, bad children, bad parents, abuse, sickness, cancer, Death, corruption, loneliness, anxiety, and shame. Look at Adam and Eve, husband and wife. They were ashamed to look at one another. Cain killed Abel. Noah, after the great redemptive work of the ark, became drunk. Abraham gave up his wife to save himself and then laughed at God when God revealed to him his plan of redemption. Moses, after facing Pharaoh, after showing the signs of Yahweh to Pharaoh, brought the people through the Red Sea, established them as a people, but then didn't get to go into the land because he disobeyed God's word. David was an adulterer, a murderer. He watched one of his own children die. And he was almost murdered by another son. Because he wanted his throne. This is a world cursed and drowning in sin. 
And this is what sin does to the world. It wreaks havoc on God's order. It has destroyed our relationship with our God. It has destroyed our relationships with one another. It has destroyed our relationships with the creation. And it's even destroyed our relationship with ourselves. Yet we read John 1, 1. And this opening phrase should sound familiar. In the beginning was the word. You see, God created Adam and Eve in the sixth day. But yet here in John 1, 1, Jesus is not a created being. You see, Adam was made in the image of God. But Jesus surpasses Adam. He is God. Jesus is the new Adam. And in him, we have a glimpse of what the world was supposed to be, how God intended it. We see a microcosm of the way the world is supposed to work. In Jesus, the God-man, we find the longing that we desire in our stories because our stories are broken. But in Jesus, we find the fulfillment of that story. The picture was good. The story was good. But sin ruined it. But God gave his people an answer to the problem. In Jesus, he is restoring and renewing his creation so that one day it will be very good. Do you believe in this story? It is the true story of history. It's the only story that makes sense. It gives us meaning, purpose, and identity. Jesus has reconciled us to God. Jesus mends our relationships with one another. We are able to forgive others because we have first been forgiven. In Christ, we have a biblical perspective of how to care for his creation as his stewards. And God has not given up on his creation. For Jesus came to us. He took on flesh to redeem his creation. What do you long for? Jesus is the answer. Because we long for things because we do not have. But Jesus fulfills everything we do not have. He speaks into our brokenness. We long for things because of the depravity of sin. But hear this, people. Christ has destroyed sin's grip on you. He has come in the flesh and by faith He renews us through his spirit. And guess what? We get to cry, Abba, Father, because we have been adopted in Christ. He was the word who bore the sins of the world. He took what was undone, what sin had destroyed, and he killed it on the cross. 
Jesus came to set the captives free. He came to release us from our struggles. He came to reconcile us to God, to reconcile us to one another, to reconcile us to the creation and gave us forgiveness for our sins. He is our covenant king. How does this change the way you see the story? Because in Jesus, we are invited to enter in into the story of God's redemption in Christ. Amen.